I'm Alan Slade. I'm one of the uh, ruling elders here. And it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Special welcome to our guest and a special welcome to our William & Mary students. Uh, other places, the semester winds down this time of year, but I think at William & Mary it actually ramps up. So you being here this morning is a, is a good indication of your, your priorities. So we're, we're glad to have you here. We're going to be reading Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and you can find that on page 977 in your Pew Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week, we talked about the problem with our plans, which, headline, is our own sin and arrogance. Uh, this week, we'll look at the power of God's plans. And God's plans really are captured in, in the whole of the scriptures. So it's a little intimidating to have to pick a passage that, uh, that encompasses God's plan. But if I had to pick one passage, and I did, um, I would pick Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. As we read it, listen carefully for God's call for each of us, his call for the church as a whole, and the centrality of Jesus Christ in his plans. So Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the people of God might be equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask that um, as we look at uh, Ephesians 4 today, that you might open our ears, Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. Help us to see your plan, to see your call in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So the passage, Ephesians 4, opens with a rather provocative statement. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what is this calling? What is, what is it that Paul's talking about here? When I was a kid in Newport News, we used to play outside basically all summer. Um, when it was time for supper, my mom would call us home. If we didn't respond to that call, a few minutes later, my dad would come to the front porch and would use an ear-splitting whistle to call us home. We might or might not hear my mom's voice, but we would definitely hear my dad's whistle. And we knew it's time to go home. Calling implies there are two places, where I am and where I need to go. It also implies two people, the one calling and the one being called. So at 5.30 p.m. in the summer, wherever I was, whatever, whatever nook or cranny of the neighborhood I was playing in, I was called to move and to go home. The caller was, was my parents, obviously, and they had the primary role in this whole event. Okay? They provided the resources for the meal, they prepared the meal, they set the table, they laid it out, they made it attractive and nutritious. Okay? So they had the primary role, they were the callers. Okay? But I and my brother had a, a small role, yes, but an important role. We had to respond to the call. We had to come home, we had to sit at the table, and then we got to enjoy this meal. Our Christian calling, in many ways, is like dinner at the Slade's only much, much better. God calls us. His calling encompasses our careers, our friends, our church fellowship, and our family. It encompasses all of our lives. He provides for us and prepares a place for us. He's also persistent. So in the summer, if I didn't respond to my mom's voice, I would hear my dad's whistle, and I'd almost always respond to that, okay? God's call is more powerful than the most piercing whistle you could possibly imagine. And one difference is our calling in Christ is not like dinner, it's not a one-time thing. You hear it, you respond, you're done, okay? No, our calling is a lifelong call. We are called to sanctification to becoming more and more like Jesus. And uh, as a result, we're, we're, we're going to have to, uh, to play our part. So we, yeah, our part is small compared to God's part, but it is essential. Um, we have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Clearly from a biblical perspective, all Christians have a calling. Clearly also though, all Christians are not necessarily walking in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, or else Paul would not have had to, to write what he did in Ephesians 4.1. For a non-Christian, is this concept of calling important? I, I think it is. Each of us must address the biggest issue in calling, which is, are we being called by God to follow Jesus? I encourage you to settle the issue of following Jesus first. 
When you do, that will set a foundation for all of your other plans for the rest of your lives. For those of us who are committed to following Jesus, verse one should give us pause. Are we living lives worthy of our calling? How would we know? How would we know what our calling is? So in thinking about our calling and thinking about what our calling is, I find it useful to distinguish between general calling and specific calling. Our general calling is what we all share, to accept God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and to live lives of grateful obedience. Our general calling is contained in the broad sweep of scriptures, including Ephesians 4, but we also each have a specific calling, and our specific calling is to specific people, places, times, and tasks. And our specific callings, by their very nature, differ. Your specific calling is different than mine. We have to struggle to find our specific calling, and, and it's a bit hard to grasp it, because even if somehow I perfectly know what my calling is at this point in time, that I'm to be standing behind this podium talking to you about Ephesians 4, well, great, and what am I gonna do this afternoon? and tomorrow, and next week, and next month. So we're constantly looking for, we're constantly exploring, we're constantly seeking our specific calling. Ephesians 4 talks about both general calling and specific calling. And I'm gonna organize our, 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 uh, our conversation this morning around a, a simple phrase, that we are called to hum. We're called to humility, unity, and maturity. We're called to hum. So let's look at humility first. And humility in this passage goes hand in hand with love. In verses two and three, Paul talks about humility, gentleness, and patience. He also says we're commanded to bear one another or bear with one another in love. Humility, or to use a more archaic term, lowliness, according to John Stott, was much despised in the ancient world. The Greeks never used their word for humility in the context of approval, still less of admiration. Instead, they meant by it an abject, servile, subservient attitude. Being humble was shameful to the Greeks. It was like making yourself a slave. Our calling is quite different. Paul, in the book of Philippians, chapter two, verses three through eight, lays out the importance of humility for the believer. So Philippians two, starting with verse three. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, who's fully God, fully God, humbles himself by becoming a person. And not just any person, 
a very lowly person, okay? One who the world would look at and say, why him? Born to a poor family, a carpenter, probably living on the edge of poverty his whole life. And then, being born to a low estate, he humbles himself further. As you read through the, the, the Gospels, you see he's constantly putting other people first. He's constantly putting himself uh, in service of other people. The See Jesus ministry illustrates that, I think, very powerfully. But then that wasn't enough, okay? Being the lowest of servants, he allows himself, he volunteers himself to be crucified on the cross, to die for us, but not to die in some comfortable, honorable fashion, but to die in the most humiliating manner possible for us. Jesus' humility is our example. And his example is our command. Most of us are familiar with this concept of humility, I think. I'm not sure we always, I, I know this is true for me, I'm not sure I always see it as radical as it really is. Even leadership in the church is upside down, it's backwards, it, it's alien not just to the Greeks, but, but to most of us. In um, Matthew 20, verses 25 through uh, 28, Jesus, uh, faced with a confrontation among his disciples about who's more important, he, um, he uh, calls them, calls the disciples to him, and then uh, Matthew 25, starting with verse, excuse me, Matthew 20, starting with verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying leadership in the Christian church is upside down. It's not the person who, who, who wants the most honor, wants the most prestige, wants the most power, wants the most authority. It's the one who wants to be a servant. And so we're, we're in the extended campaign season that makes up American presidential elections. And it's always interesting to hear when a candidate says, uh, I'm, I'm a public servant, I'm here to serve the people. It'd be nice if that's true. I, I hope it is in many cases. But the reality is they're running for an office that gives them prestige, gives them power. If you're president, you get your own theme song. You get your own private plane. You have the US military at your command, literally your commander in chief. Okay, is that servant leadership? I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But in the Christian church, the leader is gonna be on the front edge of humility, the front edge of service. They'll be the one volunteering first to clean the toilets 
to go down into the ditch on, on, on um, uh, the day when we're working here in the church, to, to dig the yucky stuff out of the bottom of the ditch. That's the leader. That humility is exemplified by Christ is what we're to do. The image of humility that I have is that it's gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance built on a foundation of love. And so one, one image, and this is sort of a silly one, but one image I have is that of the proper British butler, okay? Now, I actually have never had a butler. I've actually, I don't think, ever met a butler other than through the magic of, of cinema. Um, but if you, you think about the, the faithful British butler, what does he do? He provides proper service at all times. Typically serving a British gentleman who's um, uh, a bit quirky and makes unreasonable requests. And what's the butler's response? Well, of course, sir. And then he goes off and he, he does it with an appropriate British stiff upper lip. <laughs> the best butlers are fundamentally humble. So they have a surplus of patience and forbearance. If we pursue humility in serving each other, we will give up the arrogant plans that we talked about last week. We will give up our personal rights in order to serve others and to glorify God. That is the nature of the humility that we're called to. It's not just humility. Remember, we're called to hum. So we're also called to unity. And so this aspect of our calling, unity, is, uh, is as Paul says, um, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The image I get here is that we're to be eager to maintain unity. Unity should be our instinct. It should be our habit. As Protestants, we have a great history of, well, protesting, okay? And, and, and at, at the time of the Reformation, we, as a, as a church, as a people, protested against the abuses of the established churches, and then eventually we separated from the established churches, and that was essential, it was necessary. Several centuries later, we have a history of denominations who have split over the issue of whether we should sing hymns in worship or whether hymns are not proper, we should only sing psalms. Imagine if instead of debating are we called to sing hymns or sing psalms, they had raised the issue of we're called to hum. We have churches, and unfortunately, many of us here have been part of, of, of congregations where this has happened. We've had churches that have split over the issue of who is to be our senior pastor. We have churches that have split over the issue of how should this specific ministry happen. This tendency to voice our complaints as we're walking out the door makes us look silly to the world and it grieves God our Father. Let us practice gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. Let us serve one another. Let us be quick 
to maintain unity. Why is unity so important? In Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, talk about us as the body of Christ, growing up into Christ who is our head. A body can't go in different directions. It can't serve multiple masters. It is physically, physiologically, and psychologically unified, or else we need serious healthcare. If the church is the body of Christ, it must be unified, spiritually, relationally, and aggressively unified. Now, is there a point at which protest is necessary? Yes, but it is a higher hurdle than our preferences. It is where the truth of the gospel is at stake. We um, all have made commitments, at least all of us who are members of, of the Presbyterian Church in America, we've all made commitments around this issue. And I'm gonna start with Camper as a teaching elder. He had to, at the point of his ordination, say yes to the following question. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church? whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account. And Camper had to say yes, if he, would, if he hadn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be a teaching elder. Those of us who are church officers had to answer this question, yes. Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Those of us who are com communicant members in the Presbyterian Church in America, we had to answer this question. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So we've all vowed to support the purity and peace of the church. Let us be careful not to disrupt the peace of the church for our preferences. Instead, let us be careful to speak out for the truth of the gospel, for the purity of the church, and let us speak the truth in love not in disunity. Verses four through seven of Ephesians four point us to God himself as the source of unity and the example of unity. There is one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God in three persons, spirit, Lord Jesus, and Father is unified completely, totally, and perfectly unified. Likewise, in verses four through seven, we see the commonality of fellowship that binds us all together. We share a general calling, one hope that belongs to our call, one faith, one baptism. Our call is based on this common hope. Our fellowship is based on one faith. The visible sacrament of baptism is one. Let's take a moment to think about baptism. Are there differences in beliefs about baptism? Absolutely. Immersion or sprinkling? Seal of the covenant, replacing circumcision or not? Infant or believer? These details may be important, but they should not destroy our unity in the faith. Our family represents an, uh, an interesting uh, example of, of a range of, of experiences when it comes to the sacrament of baptism. We have eight sons, 
But unlike Jesse, we named number seven David. We, we didn't wait till number eight. But of our eight sons, four were baptized in the Presbyterian Church in America, actually at three different congregations. Four were baptized in the Christian Reformed Church, all eight of them baptized as infants. Mary was baptized in the Catholic Church as an infant. I was baptized with believer's baptism, and I was the only one who was, was dunked, uh, but I was baptized in, in the Southern Baptist Church in Newport News. 10 slates, six churches, four denominations, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, we have the theory, but we've all lived the practice that's a little different. We're told here the church is unified, and yet we see the divisions in the church. What's going on with that? How can Paul say there is one body when obviously there are many divisions in the church? I think it's useful to, to talk about the difference between a certain declaration and a compelling declaration. Let me give you an example. When it was declared that Alan and Mary were husband and, and wife, that was a certain declaration. At that moment, when that declaration was spoken aloud, we were husband and wife, we were married. No doubt about it, it was certain. In our wedding ceremony, though, there were also compelling declarations. Mary and I were commanded to love one another, to forsake all others, to leave, cleave, and become one. In other words, to work at being married. When I fall short, when I'm not fulfilling my calling in my relationship to Mary, that's a problem, but I'm still married. That's still certain. The certain declaration of our marriage does not depend on my current level of obedience to the calling to work at my marriage. When God declares the church is one body, it is a certain declaration. There is no doubt we are unified in Christ. But we also have compelling declarations to work at our unity. When we're successful in working at our unity, verse 16 comes alive. The whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has set the table for unity and we must respond to his calling. Let's make sure we sit down together and enjoy the meal with our family. So if we're called to hum, we've got humility, we've got unity, and then we're also called to maturity. My mom would never call me home to an empty table at dinner time. She always had a nourishing and tasty meal. It was truly a gift. I mean, I didn't do anything to deserve it, but it was truly a gift from her. Our calling, our specific callings, are based in part on the banquet God has provided for us. In Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, we read, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of, God, of Christ's gift. 
Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11 lays out some of those gifts. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. John Stott has said that this list of gifts is not exclusive. As a matter of fact, he, he points out there are five sets of, of gifts, five lists of gifts in the New Testament, and none of them appear to be exclusive. They, they, they overlap a little bit, but they're, they're also all distinctive. Paul selected the gifts that he lists in verse 11, I believe specifically. These gifts are all related to the ministry of the word. Apostles and prophets helped establish the word, the holy canon of scripture. Evangelists make the general call of the gospel to those who have not yet followed Christ. Shepherds and teachers use the word to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But notice that the work of ministry is not just for those with teaching gifts. It's not just camper, it's not just the paid staff, it's not just the elders and deacons, not the Sunday school teachers and VBS teachers and home group leaders only. It's all of us, each and every one of us who ministers. Teaching exists to equip all of us for the work of ministry so that all of us will build up the body of Christ. Verses 12 through 16 of Ephesians 4 lays out the plan for the growth of each of us as individuals and for the church as a whole. When we're spiritual children, Paul says, we are susceptible to being tossed to and fro by the waves of questionable theology. Sitting with good biblical teaching pushes us to grow into spiritual adulthood. And that spiritual adulthood is defined by the unity of the faith and our knowledge of Jesus. Full maturity is to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our calling, once again, is to sanctification, to the lifelong process of filling ourselves with Jesus and driving out all that is not Jesus. Uh, Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20 gives us a picture of that. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's clearly further along in his calling than I am. Yet this is the picture we should all pursue, this idea of, of Christ lives in me. I die to myself so I can live for Christ. I am pushing out all of my selfish ambition, all of my greed, all of my arrogance. I am taking on the character of Jesus more and more and more. And that's the lifelong calling we all share, to, to be sanctified, to become more and more Christ-like. Verse 15 has a, a phrase that, that's, that's often used, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, uh, in the face of conflict. Uh, verse 15 mentions speaking the truth in love. Um, that phrase, that, that character, that, that um, uh, behavior requires humility, unity, and maturity. But 
In the sentence contained in verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love grammatically is actually a subordinate clause. It's a, it's a consequence of our growing humility, unity, and maturity. The capacity to speak the truth in love requires all those things, but it requires something else. Uh, to speak the truth in love, we must perceive the truth. We must know the truth. One consequence of the fall is that our perceptions have been distorted by sin. Our ability to discern the truth will grow with our sanctification, with our spiritual maturity. Romans chapter 12, verses two through three, uh, gives us a, a, a picture of that process of, of growing our ability to perceive the truth. So Romans 12, starting with verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, what is your calling. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul talks about what's necessary to test and approve God's will, what's necessary to, to, to find and, and pursue our calling. First of all, we need a transformed mind. We, we can no longer conform to the worldly patterns of perception and bias, but we must have our minds transformed by Christ. We also need sober judgment. Think about what's the opposite of so, sober judgment? I, I think it's probably intoxicated impulse. Um, Paul specifically mentions the problem, the intoxicated impulse, of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Very high self-esteem is related to what some, pe some people call the fundamental error of attribution. And so for people, forget that. For me, basically, I am biased to believe that everything good that happens around me because of me. It's my effort, my ability. And furthermore, everything that happens around me that's not so good, it's not my fault, okay? It's task difficulty or luck or someone else's sin. That's what causes all the problems around me. Good thing I can step in and fix it. Okay, that's the fundamental error of attribution. We overvalue ourselves while we step on everyone else around us. This perceptual error can block our ability to see the truth. And overly high self-esteem is the opposite of the humility that's required of us in Galatians 4.2. Now Paul does not mention the opposite problem of thinking of ourselves more lowly than we ought. You might say, well, wait a second, is that humility? I mean, low self-esteem would, would line up with humility, wouldn't it? Well, actually, very low levels of self-esteem can also prevent us from seeing the truth. People with very low self-esteem perceive that they have little or no value and that everything that goes wrong around them is their fault. People with unduly low self-esteem share a key characteristic with people with unduly high self-esteem, which is, it's all about 
me. I cause what's good, I cause what's not so good. Both extremes of self-esteem suffer from intoxication with the wine of self-importance. The alternative in Romans 12.3 is to look at ourselves with sober judgment. We must acknowledge our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes and our failures. Then when our minds are transformed, we can focus appropriately on others and perceive the truth about them. This is an echo of what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. And so, Matthew and, uh, excuse me, Jesus in uh, Matthew 7, starting with verse 3, says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So often when we proclaim that we're going to speak the truth in love, the reality is we've got this giant log in our eye. We're so biased by our own false beliefs about ourselves we can't really see the other person, and here we are going to do eye surgery on them. Another way to, to restate Jesus' words about taking the log out of your eye so that you can see the speck in your brother's eye is grow up so you can speak the truth in love. Attain the calling, reach for the calling of humility, unity, and maturity, and then you'll be ready to speak the truth in love. I want to end looking at verses 15 and 16 in Ephesians 4. If we, if we grasp this in its fullness, this is a breathtaking picture of spiritual maturity. So verses 15 and 16 say, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're called to hum. We're called to humility, unity, and maturity. As we become more full of Jesus, the problem with our human plans, the problem with our sin and our arrogance becomes less and less. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we walk humbly, when we're joined in unity with Jesus as our head, when we grow in maturity and use all of our gifts to build up the body of Christ. Then we work like a team, like a healthy body, like the church in its full glory. God is calling. Come to the table. Grow in humility, grow in unity, Grow in maturity, grow the church, grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ. Let's pray.